Good evening. I hope you've enjoyed your bank holiday Monday. We're here as ever. And you saw those pictures a moment ago, HMS Prince of Wales limping back into port. But it doesn't look very good, does it, for an island nation that's always been proud of its Royal Navy? And whilst we're on that theme, Pretty Patel said she was going to put the Royal Navy in the channel. That would sort the whole thing out. No problem at all. Truth is, the Royal Navy have been totally ineffectual. The morale of those on board is not good because it's not what they joined the Royal Navy for. And the Royal Navy is being withdrawn from the channel. And we've learned today that two private companies will be given contracts valued at two and a half million pounds and they'll work alongside Border Force for the next six months. Basically, we're paying private firms to be a taxi service. All you have to do is get 12 miles from British beaches and you'll be brought in and you'll be processed and you'll be put into a four-star hotel. That's the way that it works. Let's have a look at the numbers. 8,700 so far this, this month have crossed the channel. That's as many as came in the whole of 2020. 1,295 last Tuesday, 804 last Thursday, and last Saturday, 915. And they all came in the morning because the wind was due to freshen in the afternoon. And you can look at these pictures and these floats, those of you watching this on television, to see that the whole thing is completely and utterly out of control. But something I hadn't seen before. And bear in mind, it was this programme that first said something was happening in Albania. And I notice a lot of newspaper articles now based on things that we've revealed. On Saturday, I had somebody in Dover Docks counting my numbers in, and he said to me he'd never seen such an aggressive group of young men walk up those gangplanks, and he's been following this, studying this, ever since the problem began back in 2018. And it backs up what Lucy Morton, a professional officer with the ISU Union who represent Border Force, she said this just before the weekend. She said, Channel migrants are now predominantly Albanians, and I was told Saturday it looked like 70% Albanians, and that staff are now facing, I mean, can you believe this, increasing violence. They tend to go with the nationalities, Morton said. There are a lot of young males a lot of prison tattoos and prison haircuts. I've had two staff attacked in the last week and three bitten. That is what is going on in Dover. No more can we pretend that those crossing the channel are poor, desperate people. Perhaps some of them are. The vast majority are young males coming to enter criminal activity in this country. And by the looks of it, I've got to ask myself a question. Are the Albanians literally emptying their prisons? I don't know the answer to this, but you heard that from Lucy Morton. Prison tattoos and prison haircuts. This should be, in my view, a national emergency. I mean, how many more moped thefts do we want in London? How many more stabbings? How many more shootings? We've got law and order declining in every one of our major cities, and every police force will tell you the growth of Albanian leg gangs over the last couple of years has been a major problem. What is to be done? Well, it seems that Priti Patel gives us another big promise, that there's been an agreement with the Albanian government that lots of them will be deported. I won't be holding my breath. I'll believe it when I see it. Well, joining me to talk about this is Norman Baker, former Home Office Minister and, of course, former Lib Dem Member of Parliament for Lewis and regular, regular contributor to programmes here at GB News. 
Norman, in your days in the Home Office, we didn't face this problem with the channel, but we did face foreign criminals, and they were very often deported and often in quite large numbers. I mean, can you believe, Norman, this situation with the Albanians at the moment? Um, it's very serious, Nigel, and uh, let me give you a couple of figures, if I may, to put things in perspective. The first thing to say is that the top five countries in terms of uh, nationalities who arrive in this country, through the channel or whatever it happens to be, come from Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, Eritrea and Albania. Now, the first four of those represent countries which are dysfunctional and where people may well be under threat of torture or execution or some other form of, of uh, treatment which justifies an asylum claim. And you'll know that last year, 76% of those who claimed asylum were actually granted asylum, and a further 51% of the remainder, so another 11% or whatever, were granted appeal successfully. So most of those who arrive actually are genuine refugees, deemed to be by the process we have. However, well, I agree with you, there's a, there's a different issue with Albanians, and Albanians are separate from that. And I don't believe Albanian uh, refugee status is, is, by and large, justified. Why? Because Albania is a functioning democracy. It's, got, it's corrupt in some ways, it's not perfect, but it is a functioning democracy where people can vote and change the government. It's got civil liberties. Uh, and therefore, those who arrive from Albania in particular, I think, are people who are predominantly economic markets, which I think is why the government is right, actually, to single out this particular country for particular mm. treatment. Now, here's a problem, Nigel. You okay. and I will actually agree on this, I suspect. We'll agree on everything, but <laughs> we'll agree on this. There are 118,000 people waiting to be processed. 118,000 people, 72% of them have been waiting for more than six months. This is a problem. If we had a system, and I argue this in government, if we have a system which enables people to be assessed quickly, processed quickly, and either integrated into our society sure. or deported much more quickly, that would be the answer. Well, Norman, you and I can argue the 76%. My understanding is they're not actually granted asylum status. They're given uh, a period to stay in the country whilst the whole thing's sorted out. But that aside, I agree with you 100% that these Albanians don't qualify, they don't qualify as refugees, they are economic migrants, and more worrying still is the growth of Albanian crime in this country, and that's undisputed. Can we, this is my question to you as somebody who's been in the job, can we, are we able to deport them back to Albania all the while we're signed up to the ECHR? Yes, we can, because it can be a very quick assessment which should take place, uh, and that, that assessment will probably conclude that they are economic migrants. There's no reason why that shouldn't take place. That's the case under the ECHR or any other system you've got. And by the way, upon I was at the Home Office, one of the problems with Albanians in particular was associated with trafficking of women for sexual exploitation purposes, trafficking yeah. of children. Yeah. You know, they are not a happy uh, addition to this country. Norman Baker, well spoken. I hope what you say comes to pass. And thank you for joining us tonight here on GB News. Now, Boris Johnson is one week away from giving up the Premiership, and it is clear he is now battling for his legacy. 
And I think the one thing that Boris appears to be the most proud of now is the net zero target. Yes, it was passed into law by Mrs May without a vote in the House of Commons, but Boris has picked it up and embraced it. Maybe the, uh, his new wife had something to do with that. But he's got great enthusiasm. He wants to turn us into the Saudi Arabia of wind and other things. And Boris is pleading with his successor, for which we can guess is really, um, you know, a chat directly at Liz Truss, who has talked about green subsidies, etc. And he's saying we must preserve net zero. So is it right that we stick with these targets? Is it right that we stick with Boris's agenda? Or has the time come for perhaps a little rethink? We're well, joining me to debate this is Tom Burke. Tom, of course, a friend of the programme, chairman of E3G and former executive director of Friends of the Earth. And Chris Morrison, environment editor at The Daily Skeptic, joins us as well. And Chris is a climate skeptic. And the first thing we'll discuss is the use of the word climate emergency. We see horrendous flooding taking place in Pakistan at the moment. We had a big drought uh, in our country, of course, up until just a few days ago. Chris Morrison, is it right to call this a climate emergency? Well, recently, uh, Professor Richard Lindzen of uh, MIT described the current climate narrative, and by that he meant the emergency breakdown, whatever, as absurd. And he said, but trillions of dollars being paid to grant-dependent academics, agenda-driven journalists, he said, uh, means that it's not absurd. And uh, so is there an emergency? Uh, no, there isn't an emergency. It, 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 it's an invention. Um, if you but look there are these weather events, big weather events, as I say, drought conditions in much of the UK, mass flooding in Pakistan. Uh, we had nearly 30 people killed in the Midwest of America. Are these normal weather events? Yes, they are. They're perfectly normal. And you can debunk every single one of these extreme uh, uh, claims. Uh, there is no scientific proof, there is no scientific paper that is yet attributed. Uh, of course, we call them extreme. We used to call them bad weather, of course, in a few years ago. There is no paper, there is no scientific evidence that, that attributes them. Uh, to humans burning fossil fuel. Uh, there isn't a single, uh, for instance, as well, a single climate paper uh, peer-reviewed that uh, proves that humans cause climate change. Uh, right. It's an unproven All hypothesis. Right. OK, thank you very much indeed. Tom, uh, calling it an emergency, we see an alarming number of young people reportedly very concerned, angst-driven, mental health problems. Are we being a bit sort of irresponsible in using this term emergency? Well... I don't think we're being irresponsible. I think, I mean, I disagree with Chris. I think Chris is very brave, but frankly, he, if, if he's right, then 190 odd governments around the world are all wrong and have been completely fooled by some magic, mysterious conspiracy that's convinced everybody. Okay, so, so let me come back to that. Is it, I mean, do you think it's right and responsible? to use the phrase climate emergency. Yeah, I do think it's right. Do think it's right. Yeah, I do think it's right. I think we've got no time. I Pe think to really people understand... People gluing themselves to roads and well, blocking the M25. Oh, well, well, and... well, well that, 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 look, if people choose the way they want to react to emergencies, however they choose, I'm not defending or criticising anybody. But quite simply, the real thing about this problem is it's got a time clock on it. If we get it wrong, we're in real trouble. And that is exactly what you have in an emergency. You have a limited amount of time to deal with it, and that's the situation. How would you problem. respond to the point Chris made that there is no actual proof? Well, he's just wrong. He's, what, what, he's just wrong. Where is the proof? Well, he's, well, he's, no, the, the, what do you mean? You want me to take out my pocket? There is, there is a consensus 
of governments, and I agree with that. There is a consensus of many scientists, but not all, that man-made CO2 is contributing to global warming. I absolutely understand that. His question was, or his statement was, there's no, there's no actual proof. Well, what constitutes proof? proof? Tell me what you think proof is. I, is want, proof? I would like to see a, a, a climate paper that proves beyond doubt that uh, humans burning fossil fuel cause the climate to change. Well, I we, think you we, should read the latest report of the intergovernmental panel on climate proof. change. That, it is does an, exactly that is a narrative. That, that is a narrative. No, I'm sorry, it's not a narrative. It's a report by a bunch of, a very large group of scientists endorsed by a very large number of governments. I don't know what else you think constitutes well, proof. Well, I mean, there is the World Climate Declaration, so there are, there are a growing number of scientists who say we should question well, this come on, there are, this. Well, wait, when you look at the list of the scientists who signed yeah. up to those things, turns out not very many of them are actually uh, climate scientists. And what's more, well, that's none of the work well, that's been has been peer-reviewed. One, one fact I was given the other day, I don't know whether it's right or not, you'll tell me, that of all the carbon dioxide produced in the world every year, mankind only produces 3% of it. Is that right? I've no idea, actually. I don't know the exact number on that. It, but it, I, it is right. Well, it, well, in a sense, so what? I mean, the point no. is not how much carbon dioxide is around, well, it's what well, it's doing well, to the climate. Well, my thought was if 97% of CO2 being produced is being produced by volcanoes and naturally we have no control over that. But, you know, uh, I mean, I just, uh, no, it's, uh, it's, it's a point of no, clarification. Let me, help, let me help you, Nigel. Go on. There's a cycle of carbon in the atmosphere, yeah. right, of which plants and you and I yeah. are breathing out carbon dioxide yeah. and there's a cycle which returns that to rocks or vegetation and so on. If you add Additional, and that's imbalance, and has been imbalance till we started burning How do you fossil know if fuels. It's imbalance? Uh, You'll get your chance, Chris. Sorry, uh, sorry. bear with me. So that little three percent is what tips it out of balance, and it's like anything, any gyroscope, anything. You tip it out of balance, you get some pretty catastrophic right. consequences. Man has upset the balance of the world and of nature. Really, is what Tom's saying. Well, again, where is the proof? Uh, it's possible. We we do increase the amount of CO2 in, in the atmosphere. Yeah, we do. But the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere is is at a paleoclimatic low. It's 400 parts per million. If it went down to about 180 parts per million, life on Earth would cease because there, would be, uh, there wouldn't be enough CO2 for plant food. So, and in the past, in going back 600 million years and going back through the period, CO2 has been much, much higher. It's been 15 times higher. And we can see... But there wasn't much living on the planet then. <laughs> uh, well, there was. No, there was. No, no, no. no, 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 from, no, about, no. from about, well, from about no, 300... Well, 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 I, tell you, I tell you what, before we go back to what happened 600 million years ago, <laughs> I, given the time constraints that we've got, and we've debated the emergency point, quickly, Tom, Boris absolutely went for this. He went for net zero. He went for renewable energy. Uh, is he right to say that that legacy should be preserved? He wasn't wrong about everything, so he was right on this thing. <laughs> so absolutely right on this, uh, that that legacy should be preserved. Not much of the rest of his legacy should be preserved. OK, well, that's a separate point entirely. Uh, Chris, final thought to you. Net zero. Should we, should we put it on hold? Should we get rid of it? What is, or, or is Tom right that actually this really matters and it's important? Net zero is a disaster waiting to happen. It will have appalling consequences in the near future. We know that the power is going to start failing. One hopes it doesn't uh, in this, this winter, but it does. Thousands of people will die of the cold. 
a lot, most people, or a large proportion of the population, will not be able to afford to, to, to warm their house. And it is all down to net zero. It's all down to the idea that you can take out the one cheap, reliable fuel that has powered uh, a human society for the last hundred years and given us enormous prosperity. Which, and is, lifted, fossil, which is fossil fuel. Which is fossil fuel. And, and all right. 76 right. percent of which... I'm going to, I'm going to, Now, didn't I do well there as a neutral umpire? <laughs> I tried not to take sides. <laughs> really unusual. It may never happen again on this programme. But I've done my best. So I asked you, where do you stand on this debate? Should Boris's legacy on net zero be preserved, or is it time for a fundamental rethink? One viewer says, it was in all the party's manifestos, there was no other option, give people a vote on net zero, and that will show its popularity. I have to say, I think if there was a referendum on net zero, and we really debated this openly, uh, I think you'd be very, very surprised at how many members of the public would say, do you know what? We're not going to pay for this. Why should we pay for this? We produce less than 1% of global CO2. It should be China and others cutting back, not us. I think you'd be very, very surprised. Another says, Boris needs to drop his obsession with the green net zero, green rubbish. Well, Boris, it looks to me like he will never drop it. The question is, what is Liz Truss, if it's to be her, going to do? Ryan says, no, the policy should go straight on the bonfire. The green agenda is the main cause of the cost of living crisis. Ryan, wash your mouth out with soap and water. Nobody, but nobody, is allowed to say that. We cannot, we will not allow the great British public to understand that they've been absolutely ripped off on green subsidies which have been given to rich landowners and giant multinationals. But we're not supposed to discuss that. But hey, here on GB News we do. And finally, Michael says, no way, it should be like Boris Johnson, kicked into the long grass. Whose idea was it to blow up coal-powered fire stations? We've blown up loads of them. Now, something that is not being discussed at all in this leadership election campaign, but that I think could become very, very important, is the level of sterling against the dollar. And for those of you watching on television, we'll show you the chart right now. Last September, sterling was 140 against the dollar, but it is now languishing down at 117. Well, one man who told me when sterling was 130 that it was due for a rapid and sharp correction, so he's the form horse, he's got it right so far, is Martin Malone, economic advisor to Oriel Partners. Martin, you told me at 1.30 this would happen, that things were going wrong. Mm -hmm. Why are we not discussing Sterling? Why is it not part of the leadership debate? Why is it not a mainstream argument? I think it's, it's the centre of economics and it's basically very, very difficult to get people excited about a currency because it's very, very tricky to understand and it's also exceptionally difficult to try and predict where it's going to go. Most of the people in the City of London try to do it every day. Okay. Most investors try to do it, many very badly. So I think that's just the difficulty attached to currency is people just stay clear from what they don't know. Now, it seems to me that the pound is down against the dollar, that the euro has broken down below parity with yeah. the dollar. It's all about energy, isn't it? We, you know, Europe dependent now upon Russia to keep the lights on and the factories open. We're dependent not so much on Russia, but on Qatar, on Norway, etc. And America, pretty much energy independent. Isn't that what the currency markets are telling us? 
yes, I think so. I think that's exactly right. Around 90% of UK energy was domestically based. Now it's closer to 60%. So the UK is really beholden to the price of the pump is you're importing it. Therefore, the cost of it is due to that currency appreciation, uh, that currency devaluation, but yep. also depreciation of oil and gas. So you're getting a double hit. And the, the U.S. don't have that. The U.S. has actually had a currency that's gone up 20% in the last 12 months, which actually helps their inflation rate roll over, well, which well, doesn't here. Well, let's come to that. So, you know, you were right from 1.30 to here. If we're to fall much further, and if, if parity with the dollar for the pound was on the horizon, that would be a full-blown sterling crisis, the likes of which we haven't seen. Well, we saw it a bit with the exchange rate mechanism in the early 90s, and then you've got to go back to the mid-70s. Let me ask you, do you believe a sterling crisis is coming? Uh, yes, I think there's a very, very good chance, maybe 70, 80 percent chance that we will see one. And we potentially can break parity against the pound, against the dollar, uh, probably by Christmas or maybe early next wow. year. And the issue is that basically there is so many crises faces the new government starting from next week that they will just let the currency go. It's an easy option to let it go. But if you let the currency go and we buy dollars, mm -hmm. we buy oil, we buy gas in dollars, that means energy prices go up even more. Correct. And it also will force the Bank of England's hand. And inflation goes up more. Inflation will go up. Bank of England will be forced to hike interest rates more. People's mortgage rates will go up. So there, this is why it's very, very tricky. But the bottom line is, in UK government history, particularly in the 1970s, where they had a disastrous Labour government, where they actually ended up getting a bailout from the IMF in 1976, you could see a full-blown crisis. And we could easily see another 20% off uh, the pound over the next three to six, nine months. And that would mean interest rates having to go up quite sharply. Uh, very sharply. And uh, we saw it in 1992 when um, the Tory government was in power. Uh, Norman Lamont was actually in charge of interest rates at the time and it, uh, I think actually at one stage put them briefly to 20%. Now, I'm not saying that is going to happen UK interest rates, but we could easily see 4 or 5% on UK interest rates and people's mortgage rates would be higher than those levels. Yeah. And that is something that uh, people are going to have to be very, very careful about. But the currency is one of the major legs that the UK government will find it very, very difficult to manage. Martin Malone, thank you very much indeed. And bear in mind, that is Martin's opinion. He's been right over the course of the last few months. There's no guarantee that he's right. That's his opinion. But I have to say, just looking at it, just looking at energy and where we are. Oh, there are some saying it's fine, it's all over. Germany has now restocked its reserves. Everything's going to be great. Prices will come back down. I still fear further shocks. And I think in a very uncertain world, people are increasingly saying the dollar, that's where we want our money to be. We'll see what happens, see how it plays out. Either way, I have to say that Liz Truss will face perhaps the biggest inbox, perhaps the most crises any prime minister has faced literally since Winston Churchill in May 1940. Nobody since then has come in to a bigger set of challenges, and I suspect Sterling is among them. Now, my What the Farage moment, and this really is something, I've got to tell you. So on Saturday night, I'm invited to go to the O2, to go to the KSI fight. Some of you are saying, what is KSI? This is influencer boxing. These are YouTubers. They're musicians. They're rappers. 
They're followed by millions and millions of young people in this country. And one of the things they now do is they have boxing bouts against each other. Here I was at the O2 on Saturday. You and Boris Johnson? Oh, I do. I, I, I could deal with him. <laughs> <laughs> Boris, if you're listening now, let's do it. Uh, that's awesome. Nigel, thanks for talking. Nice you. to meet you. Oh. There you are. And, but I have to say this to you. The O2 was full. The average age was about 18. People were well turned out, incredibly well behaved. Uh, yes, of course, we sang the national anthem and I did so with gusto as well. And I talked to lots and lots of young people there. They said this is grassroots boxing. And even if the professional boxing federations turn their noses up at this, something remarkable is happening here. But the other point, and I'm guessing that virtually nobody in Westminster media or politics would have spotted it, but these influencers, like KSI, followed by millions and millions of people, actually are providing, I think, pretty good role models to our young people. They are a counter against the left-wing propaganda that is being fed to these youngsters through our schools and universities. And it was, for me, a really fascinating, transformative moment. I've seen out there that there is a big upwelling of millions of young people who actually are quite patriotic, quite decent. Yes, there, of course, there were some youthful excesses, but something really, really interesting is going on here. And indeed, I saw a bit of this in America a couple of years ago when various rappers, music rappers, turned out to be supporters of President Trump. Politically, there are millions of young people who will be voting at the next general election and the one after, and these influencers could have a very, very major impact on millions and millions of votes. You heard it here first. Some more of your reactions coming in, and quite a lot of passion actually over Boris Johnson wanting his legacy of net zero to be preserved. One viewer says, of course net zero should go. Save us some money. We need it more than ever. Jane says, doomed to fail from the start. David says, what is the point in a net zero policy when China behave the way they do? And another says, I'm all for helping the environment, but making us poorer during a cost-of-living crisis is just ridiculous. And that really is the point. These policies, and it's not just Boris Johnson, it's not just Theresa May, this has been going on for years. The whole push to wind has been funded on billions and billions of pounds of taxpayer subsidy, and it's you at home that have been picking up the tab for this over the course of the last 20 years, and nobody ever thought it plight or right to tell you that you were doing that. Our bills have gone up hugely, and frankly, we find ourselves now with a cost of living crisis way worse than it needed to be. We've got to become energy independent. And if in the end, part of that mix is more green renewables, that's fine. But at the moment, it doesn't work. And at the moment, our over-reliance on wind means the lights literally could go out in February.
It's my favourite time of the day. Of course it is. It's time for Talking Pints. I love this part of the show. And I'm very pleased that Dr Jan Halper-Hayes has joined me. Welcome to the programme. Thanks for having me. It's great Ooh. to see you. Well, we've met before, of course, in our... as I've popped across the pond once or twice. So just to sort of go into... You know, before we talk about Republican politics and your passion uh, for all of this and Republicans abroad and all of those things, so you are trained, you are qualified as a behavioural psychologist. Yes, yeah. And... A and political. I specialised originally in um, organisational and leadership. And then when, and I've always been involved in politics, but when I helped set up Republicans overseas in 2014, um, I became even more fascinated, but also very concerned. And so I went back to school in 2017. I went to Stanford uh, to Did their, you? yep, to their summer institute for political psychology, so I could get certified as a political psychologist and really understand those dynamics that much more. And it really, it has helped quite a bit. Now, way before. You know, you got very involved in politics. You, of course, have had a successful business career. You come from a, a family of sort of serial entrepreneurs and, yeah. I guess, capitalists in a genuine sense of the term as opposed to global corporatists. Oh, absolutely. You know, earn your keep, work hard, be innovative, create something. In other words, when I get up every day, and even if I went back to work now, the first thing is, would I be making a difference? And that's always what our parents said. Are we making a difference? Whether it was when my parents had a shop um, in Portsacal, which was a big tourist area in San Pedro outside of yep. Los Angeles. Um, it was always, how are we going to make a difference for other people? And um, I spent probably the past eight years really giving back. And it has been so fulfilling. People go, oh, you're not getting paid for this? No, no, I'm actually paying for the privilege. But, but you I'm... did get paid along the way, and you've run a very successful business. And from what, yes. I can, from what I can understand of what you were doing, you were working with big companies, successful companies, yes. uh, chief executives, and trying to get them to organise themselves and function better. Right. Yeah, um, for example, uh, I led the merger and acquisition for Taylor Nelson Sofres, TNS, yep. which was a big company here. And they were in 90 different countries. And so for seven months, I hit almost all of their offices. But we ended up picking the best of the 400 leaders. And then I went around working with them as teams to figure out how they were going to implement the strategic rationale. Because there's one thing about the reason for the deal, and there's another thing about, is this going to work? And working in those days predominantly with men. Yes. You know, men chairman, men CEOs, and you've, you've got some interesting observations on all of this that you've put into a book. Please tell us about it. Well, <laughs> quiet desperation. The truth about successful men. So what have you learned about successful men? Well, here's the thing that what prompted me to write it, which I wrote it a number of years ago, was that there was someone named John Malloy who wrote Dress for Success for Women, which was basically telling them to be just like men. And all of the books at that time were coming out to tell women be like men. But the men were telling me, you know, there's something wrong here, you know? I'm not hanging around for this gold watch because I don't get the gold watch anymore. Or, you know, I have to work for a boss. And the minute they 
take him out and they put a new boss in, suddenly work life is so much better. And so I really was concerned um, if I could make a difference, really, as a psychologist. It was in my early years. And so I asked 42, well, first I asked 56 men if they wanted free counseling for a year. 42 said yes. 10 months into it, we decided we had to go another year. And in so the male bosses now need counselling, do they? Well, I'm talking 19, late 80s, wow. early 90s. I'm, I'm astonished. And well, and the thing is that that was when men were told, oh, you can't feel. So I was teaching um, a leadership course at Harvard and um, during the summer, so it was the executives that were there. And at the dinner in the evening, one of them got up because I was talking about the conflict between being rational, logical, and objective versus trusting your gut reaction. And um, so one of them got up and paged one of the other men who had been giving me a hard time during the day, and he said, hey, Jack Derliat, your internist has called. You don't have indigestion. It was a gut reaction to what Halper was saying. <laughs> you know, and, and see, for me, uh, which, I am so bothered by this masculine toxicity. Mm. I mean, you know, it's just mm. one more way they're trying to make any group of any human being awful. You know? Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I think for a lot of uh, men in business now, they're terrified of what they can say or what they can do. And, 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 and of course, quotas are coming in very, very rapidly. And I, you know, I worry that we, that we sort of throw out of the window the idea of choosing the best person because we have quotas and targets. Well, there's that. Um, but the other thing is that by making people so afraid, you completely destroy any chance for innovation. But yeah. the other aspect of it, this whole Me Too thing component, mm -hmm. is that it has made women victims. I mean, Frank Langella, his young co-star, and she went and tattled on him because he maybe put his hand in a scene on her knee or something. And you know, when you think about that, if these young women really want independence and to stand on their own two feet, they don't play victim. They don't play baby. And more importantly is they don't go out to ruin someone else and vice versa. Yeah, I mean, clearly some men have behaved terribly, but the point you're making is uh, that actually telling women they're victims is, 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 is bad and negative. And, yeah, and I have to say, I think that applies to ethnic minorities and others. Tell people they're victims and they're probably going to underachieve in life, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it, it is. Now, you've been very successful and, you know, American TV for years and all these different things you've done, but this burning passion for politics was, yes. was always going to come to the fore. It was. And I guess the point of Republicans overseas, and you were global vice president of it, uh, basically it's to, get Ameri to make sure Americans vote, yeah? Well, that was one part of it, but when I initially got involved, there was a new law that was coming into effect in July 2014. It was called the Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act, FATCA. And so all nine million at that time overseas Americans mm -hmm. were going to be affected by it. In fact, by the end of 2015, nearly 6,000 overseas Americans gave up their citizenship because of this foreboding tax situation. So sort of, sort of double taxation in effect. Uh, it, it was even worse than double taxation. And we were being penalized um, 
a woman who made $30,000 a year, um, her tax bill went from a couple of hundred dollars up to $2,500 just to fill out all the paperwork. And it, it became so okay. onerous. And even if an American owned 10% of a business here, then it meant all the business partners who weren't American were going to be affected by this law as well. So that's how we first got involved okay. in it. And we raised over a million dollars and we took it to the Supreme Court. Um, I remember. Yeah. No, I remember. I remember. It was, it was a big victory. Now, the Republican Party that you first got involved in became a Republican, I'm going to argue, became from Reagan's day, you know, very much uh, sort of moved towards the country club Republican, uh, people who perhaps were not particularly conservative, um, pretty middle of the road. And then suddenly, into all of this in 2015, is the man from New York, uh, the businessman, uh, the really out there Donald Trump. Uh, I guess he must have been a hell of a shock to the Republican Party. Oh, <laughs> uh, I would say that's a very good British understatement. <laughs> Definitely. Not only a shock, um, and having been an outsider who also had been an outsider playing their game with them because he had the money to do it, but to be able to pull off what they couldn't pull off. For example, Paul Ryan, he said yeah. Trump didn't pay his dues, and Rand Paul had actually gone to Trump and said that um, Paul Ryan is sabotaging a chance to change the Af Affordable Care Act. I mean, in other words, all that kind of stuff, a all of, that a resentment. A warfare. I mean, I'm struck, Jenny, you know, I, I, I come to CPAC and I, I read right. the back and forth and I've got to know the President Trump pretty well. Um, and I'm, I'm struck that you've now got a Republican Party very... I mean, there are lots of Ron DeSantis fans, of course. Right. But even the Ron DeSantis fans still admire what Trump did as president. The problem is, and you're the psychologist, not me, so many people say, well, you know what, the Abraham Accords were great. Uh, the reducing corporation tax for American companies, massively out of date. Um, did a lot of good things in America. But it's his behaviour, it's his language, it's the aggressive uh, appearance of Trump sometimes that puts people off. Now, it doesn't bother me, Tuppence. I'm perfectly happy right. with the way. But that's not the point. The point is you can have a base of 41% of Americans who love him, but you've got to get a few more than that to win the presidential election. And if he was to run again, and, and this debate goes on about his personality, uh, his temperament, you tell me, is he fit to do this again? He's absolutely fit. And there's a difference between a personality and temperament, which I was able, because that was a big discussion um, between Hillary saying that he didn't have the temperament. Yeah. And there is the presidential temperament tool that I actually asked Trump to take in 2015. And what came out of it because we're born with our temperament. We don't develop our temperament. We develop our personality. Right. We develop our behavior based on cultural influences, norms, etc. But Trump's temperament is one of action. It's not, it, and it is no different than John F. Kennedy's, than Lyndon Johnson's, than Bill Clinton's, than Ronald Reagan. His res results fell right 
in with that because he's a problem solver. And even in JFK, when people uh, recounted how he handled the job, if it was something yesterday, he didn't want to know about it. And if it was something tomorrow, he didn't want to know about it. He was dealing with what the issues were today. Action this day, Winston Churchill used to yes. say when he was over the, yes. over the river here. Yes, exactly. And that is Trump. And, and his uh, personality, it's New Yorker, it's quite loud, it's quite out there. And that won't change. No, it won't. But Eleanor Roosevelt said that great minds think about ideas, average minds think about events, and simple minds focus on people. And I feel psychologically, I actually am very concerned. We call it Trump derangement syndrome, yeah. but I can't really understand how people get so worked up in hating him because for that kind of, um, you don't know him. Well, you listen, see his behavior. I have plenty of hatred here because I dare to challenge the established status quo. So people feel uncomfortable when somebody challenges their worldview. And now we've got the FBI raiding Mar-a-Lago and all the rest of it. Jen, he's, he's, I mean, you're quite a fan of his, aren't you? Oh, absolutely. And a friend of his. Yes, absolutely. Look, people underestimate him. When he first came in and everyone was saying he's a fool, we're going to have our third world war, yeah. everything else. Um, and he also said at the very beginning, I've got the goods on them all. And he keeps saying, I've got the goods on them all. And you and I know that is not a light thing. And we just have to be patient and wait to see what is going will to happen. I, because will I come to, will I come to Washington, D.C.? in the third week of January 2025 and stand there in the freezing cold and see his second inauguration? Oh, yes. In fact, we'll also be at a party again in your honour the night before. <laughs> As we did last time. Yes, Jan, yes. Jan, thank you very much indeed for joining us on Talking Pints and giving us a positive view about Donald Trump's temperament, because we don't get much of that no, in the rest we don't. of the media. And trust him. Trust him. He's going to continue to do good things for the people beyond America. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Right, okay, there you are. Isn't it nice to hear a different point of view to what you get on mainstream media? Now, it is time for Barrage the Farage. Mary asks, how many no-go areas do you think there are now in this lawless country? Mary, I, I, I shudder to think. Uh, what I do know is the police have basically withdrawn, uh, in many regards, from all sorts of crimes that in the past would have been considered pretty serious. Your brand-new motor car's just been stolen. The police will not come and see you and help you. You've been burgled. Oh, well, no time for the police to come around. And anyway, the clean-up rate's only about 1.5%. Uh, so, look, you know, I think... I think we've got a massive, massive problem here. A growth of crime, but also a failure of policing. And Mary, believe me, believe me, what is coming across the English Channel in such vast numbers this month isn't helping any of it. Andrew asks... Oh, Andrew, honestly, for goodness gracious me, if you had a choice of roles in government, what would it be? Joe, it's really interesting. The other week, Tony Abbott was in, and he sat in for this part of the programme, and one of you asked, 
what's your greatest achievement in life? And I talked about the Brexit campaign and, 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 and getting a political insurgency going and what it led to. And Tony, you know, quite rightly said, well, of course, becoming prime minister of my country was an amazing thing to do. And he said, and I stopped the boats. I thought, yeah, he's really proud of the fact that he stopped the boats. So, the only possible role in government for me, there is only one, it's Home Secretary, because I would stop the boats. Oh, there'd be outrage all over the world. The UN, I'd be condemned by Sleepy Joe and everybody. But I would suss it. Robert asks, finally, do you think you should stop smoking? Oh, Robert, really? Goodness gracious me, you sound like my mum. Of course I should, but we all do things we shouldn't do. But you know what? You know what? I'm 58. I'm probably fitter than I've been for 25, 30 years. I may not be perfect, but I'm here. And I tell you what, I'm still giving the political class a tough time here at GB News. Back with you tomorrow at 7.